Hi, this is Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, together with my partner, Dr. Brian Lacey from the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. And today, really pleased to have with us Div Coley from the Kansas City VA, where he is the director of endoscopy, will be talking to us about a very interesting new paper that is published in the December 2021 issue of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, titled Comparative Safety of Endoscopic versus Radiological Gastrostomy Tube Placement Outcomes from a Large Nationwide VA Database. So Dr. Coley, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Dr. Spiegel, for taking the time, and thank you to the Red Journal for allowing us this opportunity. And, you know, on behalf of my co-authors, Kevin Kennedy, Madhav Desai, and Pratik Sharma, I wanted to thank your readers and listeners. Well, thanks to them as well, and thanks to you for submitting this paper. Just before we started recording this podcast, for our listeners, we were having a little conversation about how this is exactly the kind of paper that Dr. Lacey and I, uh, as editors for these past years, have really been looking for, the kind of paper that is clinically applicable, that you can use right away next time you're in clinic or on inpatient wards. This is a very useful and important study. So this study, I'll have you tell us more in a moment, but really addresses the issue of gastrostomy, which of course we know is a very common reason that we get involved as gastroenterologists And in particular, I'm sure this affected you as well during COVID, we had such a run on pegs that we we ran out of kits. I'm not sure about you guys, but there was a nationwide shortage of peg kits because of all the high rate that we were placing pegs. And so for many of our patients, we had to use radiologically placed gastrostomy tubes because we were out of peg kits. So this study, tell us more about what it is and why you did this study. I'll talk about the why first. So this started off during a tumor board discussion. We were talking about a patient who needed a gastrostomy tube. And during our tumor board, we have radiology and GI present. And I offered an endoscopic gastrostomy, which, you know, for the duration of this podcast, if it's okay, I'm going to use the term PEG for the endoscopic gastrostomy and an IR gastrostomy, which is placed fluoroscopically. So the IR colleagues offered the IR option. I offered the endoscopic option. And during discussion, we kind of realized that we don't really know for sure which is the better option. This was a clinically relevant topic for me too. And it just so happened that I didn't have a very good answer for it. So the goal for this study was really to figure out between an endoscopic and a radiographic approach to placing a gastrostomy, which one works better. Are there patient outcomes that we can rely on, which are important to the patients, especially the adverse outcomes? And what can we pick in terms of what are the trends for the patients? What are the trends for the physicians? What are some of the common adverse outcomes that we can focus on so that way we can mitigate them or avoid them as much as we can? One of the problems or one of the limitations uh, in the knowledge that we had was that most of the studies focused on the technical success of the procedures which is certainly important. We want to be certain that we can perform the procedure well, but the long-term outcomes and whether there was any adverse events, those are things which we weren't quite sure about. So that was the why. And what we basically did was we compared the outcomes, especially in terms of safety for a PEG and an IR gastrostomy. And for this, we used the VA database. So you mentioned which one works better, right? And so that kind of gets at the issue of what do we mean by works better? And you've identified some of that already. So very proximally, there's the technical component, and then there's sort of the safety component, and then there's actually efficacy, which 
just to be clear, this study focuses, as you said, more on safety, like mortality, risk of colonic perforation, hemorrhage, and so forth. Uh, and of course, you look at survival too. But it seems to me the downstream effects, like, for example, nutritional parameters and these sorts of things, so that's sort of a separate question because we know there's now multiple systematic reviews and meta-analyses that suggest that in certain patients, like those with advanced dementia, there's actually very little clinical benefit of placing a gastrostomy tube. So really, just to be clear about the scope of this study, we're not really looking at like our pegs worth doing right, in general, right. particularly in advanced dementia, which was a different topic versus kind of what is the safety record of these two modalities. Is that right? That is absolutely accurate. And, you know, you bring up a very good point. We have to be mindful of selecting patients who actually will benefit from a gastrostomy tube placement. For our study, for example, patients who had malignant dysphagia from a malignancy, you know, of esophageal tumors, for example, who are not surgical patients, those are patients for palliative purposes, we may place a gastrostomy tube or help them with their nutrition. Dementia patients uh, or patients in whom we do not anticipate a long-term survival, PEG tubes are not appropriate for those patients. So that's the point well brought out. Yeah. And again, I don't want to spend too much time on this side point, but I think it's so important. I was just on call in the hospital recently. And of course, we got a request for a PEG for a patient with advanced dementia, a uh, very advanced dementia, uh, can't, couldn't swallow anymore. And we're given the usual story that, well, we can't even discharge this patient yeah. unless a PEG is placed because the nursing home won't accept patients without a PEG. I always say, well, first of all, uh, show me the documentation where the nursing home is actually mandating we do a surgical procedure with little evidence in order to accept the patient. Show me that source documentation because that sounds hard to believe, really. And, you know, your study points out, and we know this, that there are serious complications that can occur from a PEG. So I'm not going to do one just because a nursing home says I need to, right? We do them because of the medical appropriateness of them. So that's kind of more me standing on the soapbox for a moment because the clinician requesting the PEG was totally unfamiliar with the evidence or lack thereof that a you know, PEG has little to no role in advanced dementia, although we can get into a whole ethical quandary around that in another podcast. All right, so let's get back to your study. You've decided to do a gastrostomy. So yeah. that's not the question. The question is which of the two to do. So this was a study in the VA, which is really a nice strength because it's a fantastic database. This was a study with over 23,000 PEGs and nearly 10,000 gastrostomies. But of course, anyone listening to this knows right away, our GI doctors especially, that all right, all right, well, obviously there are differences right off the top in patients who get a PEG versus an IR-placed gastrostomy, right? There's important differences. So any differences you see in outcomes could easily just be explained by case selection. So tell us about that and how you thought about that in this study. Right. That's very true. So, you know, one of the things we wanted to do was make sure we try to compare as best as we could similar patients, uh, meaning we wanted to specifically look at the comorbidities. So it's not that sicker patients necessarily are going towards IR gastrostomy or a PEG. Again, this was a retrospective study, not a prospective randomized one, but we did look at all the comorbidities that we could think of, especially those that would impact the mortality. So for example, we made sure that we looked at the rates of MI, uh, CHF, or you know COPD across both the arms. 
And we also calculated the burden of comorbidities using the Charlson comorbidity index, just so that we could numerically compare the conglomerate or a constellation of comorbidities and also look at specific comorbidities as well. And, you know, for the most part, we were able to see some differences, but not those that would explain differences in mortality. And not to get deep into the statistics, but we did use statistical modeling to make sure that we incorporated these comorbidities when we ran our statistical tests. Right. So you did multivariable regression because this is a multivariable problem, right? right. It, it wouldn't be fair to just show, wouldn't be fair to the radiologists, frankly, to right. just show the unadjusted rates of mortality because you would expect a higher mortality right out the gate, probably. Because for no other reason, think about head and neck cancers, which already will limit survival and often, as you write in the paper, will avoid uh, percutaneously placed gastrostomy or endoscopic gastrostomy because of seeding or the concern about tumor seeding along the uh, track. So there are these sorts of structural differences in sort of how we approach the placement of PEG that clearly are going to affect the results. So you did your best to adjust for those. The other thing you looked at was BMI. Tell us about that. Right. So, you know, one of the things was there's this concern that patients who have morbid obesity may not tolerate a PEG tube very well. Now, interestingly enough, a gastrostomy placement is being used uh, in morbidly obese patients as a bariatric procedure. So just to kind of make that point for your listeners that a large patient by itself is not a contraindication to the successful placement of a PEG tube. We did look at BMI-related differences, did assess for obesity, and we looked at the BMI, which is uh, available within our database, and we did not find any significant uh, effect of obesity, uh, whether it is on a 30-day mortality or perforation of colon. And we did a statistical test for interaction to look for this. So this is, again, a very important take-home point uh, for your uh, readers and listeners. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. So, so the idea is you, you could put some thought into this. You thought about the systematic differences in patient selection, larger patients, patients with head and neck cancers. I mean, another way of thinking about this is, is the indication benign versus malignant? Clearly survival will be different, uh, one would expect, for malignancy versus non-malignant indications. How did you approach that? So we were able to divide the indication for the gastrostomy based on benign and malignant, as you suggested. Uh, interestingly enough, the mortality that we were looking at, which in which we did find a statistical difference, was at 30 days. So malignancy should not impact uh, mortality that early. If, if the malignancy is that advanced, then perhaps we should be rethinking about the gastrostomy in the first place. The other thing was we did find a clear difference in terms of preference, which is another take home, at least for me, patients who have a malignant cause of dysphagia end up getting an IR gastrostomy much more frequently than a PEG. And we actually subdivided malignant dysphagia, whether it is for the tongue or the larynx or the mouth or the esophagus. And across each one of them, every single subtype of malignant dysphagia, there was a clear preference towards using an IR gastrostomy. And, and you mentioned one very important consideration. There is a concern for implantation metastasis at the site of the gastrostomy. And the thought behind that is when we perform a transoral pull peg in which we pull the bumper of the gastrostomy tube through the mouth across the malignancy, perhaps we are seeding tumor cells along that track. So that could be one big reason. But again, just to clarify the point regarding mortality, we did use malignant dysphagia as a variable in our covariate multi-regression analysis. 
and we did not find any difference in mortality due to this. All right, so why don't we now jump to the key findings. Walk us through what you found in terms of all-cause 30-day mortality uh, in particular, and then you can talk to us about you know, other um, you know, adverse events. Sure. So, you know, the big picture for us was, is there a difference in mortality between an endoscopic and a radiological gastrostomy? So when we adjusted for the uh, variables, which included presence or absence of malignancy and other comorbidities, the mortality with a PEG was significantly lower than with an IR gastrostomy. And this was the 30-day mortality, which was lower. At 90 days, there was no difference between an endoscopic or a radiographic gastrostomy. The other key differences were in the perforation of colon. So again, with the PEG, which is the endoscopic gastrostomy, the odds ratio for a perforation of colon were lower. The risk of peritonitis was lower with a PEG. So all these things, 30-day mortality, perforation of the colon, incidence of peritonitis. These are serious adverse events. These were much lower with a PEG. On the other hand, periprocedural bleeding was higher with a PEG as compared to the IR gastrostomy. So these were the serious adverse events. I would also like to point out that the most common adverse event that we found was actually malfunction or a mechanical complication for a gastrostomy tube. And the reason I think that is important is that physicians and patients need to be aware of this. Patients should be mindful and we, we need to educate the patients that there is a risk of malfunction. The tube can get clogged, the tube can get dislodged, and we need to be mindful of explaining this to the patient ahead of time. So, you know, going to the mortality data, I'm sort of eyeballing it here as you're talking and I'm looking at your paper at the same time. And so there was a 10.3% mortality with IR versus 9.35% with PEG. And on the one hand, you might say, oh, well, that's not a very big difference. But on the other hand, you say, wait a second, we're talking about mortality here. And the odds ratio is 0.8, which means was about the you know, take home for the listeners is there's about a 20% reduction in the odds of 30-day mortality if you use PEG instead of IR. And that's relatively speaking, a very large difference. And then you might look at this in another way, which I don't think you did, but I'm calculating it here as we're talking, which is the number needed to harm or the NNH, right. often we'll talk about the number needed to treat, treat, right? Which is how many, let's say, people need to receive a procedure or medication or something instead of a placebo or another intervention in order for one person to have a symptomatic benefit. That would be the number needed to treat. Here we're talking about number needed to harm, and I calculate about 100. Basically, for every 100 IR procedures that are done instead of a PEG, one additional person is going to die as a consequence of the choice of modality. And that's also pretty profound. Again, if a radiologist, to be fair, were listening to this, they may say, wait a second, case selection, retrospective, this isn't a prospective randomized trial. And we've talked about those things. That's why we talked about that first. And those are important limitations, but you're showing a, a difference in mortality. And then you're backing it up with things that, by the way, can be mortal, okay? Like perforating the colon which you found uh, a 50% reduction. So now the number needed to harm comes down to closer, pretty significant peritonitis. Uh, now, the one thing, of course, was the hemorrhage, where there's a little higher rate of hemorrhage in the PEG, 1.6% uh, versus 1%, which may have to do, you talk about case selection, doing it for vascular purposes, exactly. you know, who has an MI, these sorts of things, hard to know. 
So anyway, I mean, the bottom line with all this is our listeners should know, like this is as far as we can tell, the biggest, I think, best study to date in a national sample in the VA, where you also, by the way, have excellent data capture. It's not yes. like patients are lost to follow up. You have their 30-day mortality, really, um, for the most part, complete capture in these VA patients. So what's the take home um, for, you know, for our listeners? Uh, I think the take-home messages are a few. So number one, be mindful that the procedure is not the be-all, end-all. Beyond technical success, just keep in mind that there are adverse events that we should be mindful of. Colon perforation can occur with IR or endoscopic peg. Peritonitis can occur. So if the patient has pain post-procedure, don't be dismissive of it that this must be incisional pain. It's a good idea to check the patient, make sure no serious adverse event is happening. Second is when you're counseling patients and when you're getting the informed consent, it's a good practice to talk about alternatives. And it's a good idea to tell them that, hey, we have some data to suggest that between an IR or an endoscopic gastrostomy, well, these are the differences uh, to be mindful of. I think we should also educate the patients, tell them that, you know, these are some of the adverse events that may happen. Just be mindful. The peg tube can get dislodged, it could get blocked. So be on the watch for these. And the hemorrhage after the gastrostomy is again something to keep in mind. We should be mindful of whether the patients are taking antiplatelets. Are they taking anticoagulants? And is it safe for them to get off those medicines? I think it also gives us some idea of where the gaps in knowledge currently are. We need more prospective data. We need to look beyond technical success and we need to look at adverse outcomes as you mentioned, in a prospective, preferably randomized control manner. Well, that's a great summary for a very important paper. And I appreciate you taking some time with us today to share your insights about this paper with our listeners, who I'm sure will take this under advisement and hopefully can help them make decisions and communicate with their colleagues about the pros and cons of these two different approaches to placing gastrostomy feeding tubes. So thank you again for you and your colleagues. And this is sort of a bittersweet last podcast that I'm doing with you. It's been, let's see, it's been about 17 years since I graduated from fellowship. And amazingly, 12 of those years, I've been an editor of the American Journal of Gastroenterology and the editor-in-chief with Brian for the past six years. And this is the end of our planned tenure as we pass the torch over to Millie Long and Jazz Bajaz, who are now taking over the journal. So this is my very last podcast. And uh, for the listeners who have been with us throughout, I want to really thank everyone for your time and feedback as we've continued to improve these podcasts and hopefully make them more accessible, more interesting, uh, always learning. And appreciate very much to the American College of Gastroenterology for giving us this platform. For me, it's been sort of the professional honor of a lifetime to have this opportunity to speak with folks like you about research like this. So thank you all. And thanks to the listeners. And with that, I'm, I'll sign off. And for everyone, be safe and be well. All right. Thank you, Dr. Spiegel, for your time and your service. Thank you.